Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we try to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible, spoon-feeding you the latest research. So let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we're going to be covering from this week. First of all, we have part three of our series on leadership. This one's all about change. Then getting the dosing right for intranasal midazolam for pediatric seizures. After that, could a hypothermic baby mean a septic baby? Then another sepsis cocktail paper. You will never guess the results. And finally, GHB intoxication. Is clinical assessment enough for a diagnosis? This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the sensible Cliff Freeman and Clay Smith. The first article for this week was Leadership Essentials for the Chest Physician Change out of the journal Chest. This is part three of our series on leadership. Now then, since doctors stole the white coat from scientists in order to better their reputation as learned and evidence-based fellows, we thus adopted the commitment to never-ending change as the field advances and we push it forward. Every breakthrough in medical science, every innovation, studies, improvement, it should all lead to change so that we can keep up and chase that cutting edge. What's most needed during change is leaders. And followers too, actually. But anyways, we'll talk about leadership. So the authors of this paper outlined three different models for change. We'll actually focus on just one. So the authors of this paper actually outlined three different models for change, but we're just going to focus on one. These are the eight stages of change. And this was developed by Coder from Harvard University, who noticed that there was eight ways that a hundred companies failed in going through changes. We're going to frame it as more like positive things instead of failures. And the order isn't absolutely important in which you do all these things in managing change, but it could help. All right, here we go. Start off by creating a sense of urgency. It's got to be the idea that something has to happen and it has to happen now or something will be lost. It's like standing on a burning platform. Either move quickly or you're going to fall. Second is to create a guiding coalition. Getting an idea to move forward requires people behind it to actually push it forward. Enough people and the right people, and it will drag others along for the ride as well and help keep up a really good momentum. Then creating a vision to help direct the change effort. These visions have to be clear and concise. Honestly, if you can sum it up in one pithy little, you know, saying or something like that, then that's great. If it rolls right off the tongue, that's awesome. Because your team's going to have trouble remembering it through no fault of their own, so the catchier the better. And in hand with that is going to be communicating the vision for change. In this regard, there's no such thing as too much. If you've got posters, emails, flyers, changing the computer, wallpapers, whatever, shouting it from the rooftops, the more that your team hears it, essentially the better. And it should be coming from more than one voice as well. You can look around you to those who you've already got and recruited into your guiding coalition from one of the earlier steps. The fifth point is going to be empowering a broad-based action. Clear obstacles out of your path, change systems as need be, and encourage some degree of risk-taking. Always delegate. If you have power, then give that power away to others. The more that other people are invested in change, the better that things are going to be. And the best way to get invested in change is to put in your own effort. So let others put in their own effort through you delegating your power. And on that path to change, you have to create some short-term wins. Getting it all done at once is hard. In most cases, it's actually too hard. 
But if you can show your team successes every step of the way, then it'll feel a lot more like walking downhill than walking uphill. And when you're walking downhill, eh, things tend to snowball. And with those small successes, consolidate your gains and build the foundation for more change. With your small wins, you can continue to have more by letting those wins shine through as you hire, promote, and develop your team with change and progress in mind. Renew the efforts with new projects, new themes, and new agents for change. And finally, lastly, to prevent your change from slipping away from you after you've already accomplished it, anchor new changes in the culture. Sustained change means growing the management and the leadership structure, as well as having a clear succession process to continue and grow the vision. All right, that's eight points that we wanted to cover about managing change. Now, there's just a few more things I'd like to mention before we move on to the second article. Going through change is a lot like grieving. You need time to process and come to terms with change. So you can actually expect to see your team go through all the same changes as if they were grieving. Shock, denial, anger, depression, acceptance, and then finally integration. Now then I've said it before, and I'll say it again. There exists no more difficult animal to train than the adult human. Perhaps physicians especially, but we all have it within us. Be a leader. In a spoonful, change is hard, but it's crucial. And I hope that some of the insights from this article might help you be the leader for change in your own life. And that brings us to the second article, which was titled The Effectiveness of Intranasal Midazolam for the Treatment of Pre-Hospital Pediatric Seizures, a Non-Inferiority Study, out of the Journal of Pre-Hospital Emergency Care. Now, the first step to treating a seizure is hopefully to stop that seizure, which, of course, is not as easily done as it sounds, but the priority in the emergency department is still going to be just that, get that seizure under control. To accomplish our goal of seizure cessation, first-line drugs are, no surprise, benzodiazepines. These are the first-line drugs for a reason, because they tend to work. But the drugs that we give are only as good as the doses that we give them at. A problem that's been seen before and noted particularly in the pre-hospital setting is that oftentimes a lot of patients don't seem to get enough drugs. Let's dig a bit into this in terms of intranasal route for midazolam suffering from this very problem. This was a retrospective non-inferiority study that included more than 2,000 non-trauma patients who were 14 years or younger and were treated by EMS agencies in the same city. The authors compared intranasal administration of midazolam with all the other ways that you can give midazolam, so IM, IV, or IO. And then they compared the effectiveness of each route by comparing the need for repeat dosing in order to get seizure cessation. So the dosing used for midazolam in the study was 0.1 milligrams per kg, no matter which route. A little bit risky. And the risk difference for redosing intranasal midazolam compared to the other routes was 11% more likely. And so that's probably pretty clearly a mismatch of the right dosage for that route. What I'm glad to say is that the authors also interpreted it this way. Instead of calling for some just like kibosh on intranasal root midazolam, that would have been a shame, honestly, because it's nice to keep sharps away from seizing children as much as possible. So instead, the authors called for doubling the dose to 0.2 milligrams per kg instead. This honestly sounds quite reasonable. But there's even room to go higher if need be. Some centers use at higher doses, something like 0.5 milligrams per kg, and that's just for anxiolysis in the ER. So there's still room. 
in a spoonful using intranasal midazolam at a dose of 0.1 milligrams per kg for pediatric seizures was not as effective as giving the same dose by other routes. And then we have the third article, which was titled Hypothermia, a sign of sepsis in young infants in the emergency department at the Journal of Pediatric Emergency Care. No one ever wants to see a febrile infant because honestly, most likely this is going to require a full septic workup. But kind of like the SERS criteria, what if the infant is just hypothermic? Hypothermia can be caused by infections after all, especially things like HSV infections. It can also be caused pretty easily by environmental factors though. Since infants have a lot more trouble with thermoregulation than you or I, largely because they have a lot more surface area compared to, well, their body weight. So should hypothermia be a trigger for a sepsis workup, just like a fever is? To answer this question, these authors did a single-center retrospective study of almost 5,000 infants aged less than 60 days old over a three-year period who presented to the emergency department for any reason. Of these, 116 were hypothermic, with a temperature less than 36 degrees Celsius. And the prevalence of serious infection among these hypothermic infants, which was defined here in this study as a UTI, bacteremia, meningitis, pneumonia, or a herpes infection, was just 2.6%, or 3 of the 116 children, compared to a 15% rate of serious infection in febrile infants. Now, thankfully, all three of the hypothermic infants with serious infections all had other clinical signs of infection as well, like apnea, poor feeding, lethargy, ill appearance, or respiratory signs of infection. None of the infants with hypothermia alone had serious infections that were detected, at least in this study. So caveats to this data was that almost 30% of the hypothermic infants were not worked up at all for infections. And follow-up was pretty good, but it was still only 90%, so there's still room for error there. What this data really goes to show is that there's already a lot of people who aren't taking hypothermia as reason enough to do a septic workup. And honestly, if hypothermia is the only reason to be doing that workup, then I think they're probably making the right call. A misplaced blanket or even a cold room can cause something like a baby to be cold. But hypothermia combined with something, some other finding, that might deserve a workup. In a spoonful, serious infections among hypothermic infants less than 60 days old are uncommon at 2.6%, and hypothermia was never the only red flag if a serious infection was present. Which brings us to the fourth article, which was titled The Effect of Vitamin C, Thiamine, and Hydrocortisone on Ventilator and Vasopressor-Free Days in Patients with Sepsis, the Victus Randomized Clinical Trial out of the JAMA. Yet another sepsis cocktail, people. I like calling them cocktails. I mean, because they are cocktails, they're a mix of a bunch of things, but they're also cocktails because they're probably about as useful as a real cocktail. This trial is preceded by many other fun trials with fun names, so let's list off a few of them. Here they are, the Citrus Ali trial, the HYVCTTSSS, the Vitamins trial, the Vitamins for Kids, Oranges, and ACT. This was a multi-center RCT that enrolled 501 patients with sepsis who also had respiratory or cardiovascular dysfunction as a result of their sepsis. They received either a cocktail of vitamin C, thymine, and hydrocortisone every 6 hours or a matching placebo. The treatment continued for a total of 96 hours or until they were discharged or died. So the primary outcome here was ventilator or vasopressor-free days, and there is no significant difference between the groups. 25 days for the cocktail group and 26 days for the placebo group, 
mortality was also the same between both groups. Keep in mind that this study was actually stopped early due to a loss of funding. They meant to recruit four times more patients, and that's unfortunate because it reduces the power of detecting a difference. But honestly, since these cocktails were originally touted to be miracle cures, I'd say this study was still powered well enough to, well, sort of disprove that hypothesis. In a spoonful, just like all its tangy cousins, the Victus trial was negative and did not show a decrease in ventilator or vasopressor-free days, nor a difference in mortality in septic patients receiving a sepsis cocktail. Then our last article, which is titled, Can Emergency Department Clinicians Diagnose Gamma-Hydroxybutyrate, GHB, Intoxication Based on Clinical Observations Alone? Out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. So, GHB, or gamma-hydroxybutyrate, can be used recreationally or by individuals as kind of a rapid present, as someone might use to rapidly make someone unconscious, seen in sort of a date-rape situation. So, it's a weird drug. Patients can appear completely comatose, but then be back up and talking within minutes. If you knew that a patient had GHB in their system, then you might wait a little bit longer before diving into a full and expensive coma workout. The problem is that rapid urine drug screens aren't going to pick this up, and the definitive diagnosis requires gas chromatography, which is going to come back about as quickly as you think it would. So without a good and timely lab test, how good are we at recognizing and diagnosing GHB toxicity clinically? Altered patients with suspected drug intoxications who had urine tox screens ordered were prospectively enrolled in this study, and the emergency physicians recorded what they thought the most likely diagnosis would be up front. Drug and alcohol testing was done at the discretion of the emergency physicians. All samples were also sent for gas chromatography to test for this GHB, though these results were not available at the time of treatment. Of the 506 cases enrolled, GHB was present in a shocking number of them, a shocking 100 of those 500 cases. That's about 20% of the patients. Oh, wow, Amsterdam, wow, guys. I don't think that GHB is that common where I live. So most of these patients were males, and a fair number of them also had other drugs in their system which were seen on the drug screen. For the patients who tested positive, their GCS was much lower, as low as it goes. Three, compared to those who did not have GHB, which had GCSs which were closer to 11. So comparing clinical assessment to the gold standard of gas chromatography, the emergency physicians had a sensitivity for diagnosing GHB intoxication of just 63%, and a specificity of 93%, giving some pretty meh, okay predictive values a 67% positive predictive value, and a slightly better negative predictive value of 92%. Really, the takeaway from this study is that clinical assessment probably isn't good enough. If a rapid test could be developed that would tell us if the patient currently had GHB in their system and distinguish between that and past use, then and only then could we use it to avoid expensive workups. A GCS of 3, after all, is no joke. Keep in mind, though, that the rest of the planet probably doesn't have this high prevalence of GHB intoxication. So a rapid test that's designed, honestly, I'm waiting for it to come out of Amsterdam because apparently they need it the most. In a spoonful, emergency physicians were not accurate at predicting the diagnosis of GHB intoxication with their clinical assessments alone. A rapid test is honestly needed.
All right, that wraps us up. Let's do a quick review of everything that we covered this week. First off, we had part three of our series on leadership, harnessing your skills to empower change. Then when it comes to seizures and benzodiazepines, go big so that your patient can go home. Midazolam intranasally at 0.1 milligrams per kilogram for pediatric seizures was not enough. You could consider doubling that dose at least. Third, hypothermia alone in an infant less than 60 days old, it's probably okay. Hypothermia with some other concerning feature, and these kids probably deserve a workup. Fourth, yet another negative sepsis cocktail trial. This one lost its funding though, so maybe that's a sign there won't be too many more. And finally, fifth, clinical assessment won't cut it to diagnose GHB intoxication. Luckily, this drug's half-life is actually quite short, so you might not even get through the entire workup before your patients, well, wake up. And that's it. That ends this episode for this week. And now we have a whole new way for you to get your spoon feeds. That's right. Journal Feed is on Instagram at journalfeedem. Join us for spoon feeds of your favorite and best articles in your Instagram feed. And of course, you've earned them and we offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org, where in the very same place you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email if you haven't already caught them in your Instagram feed. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.